0: you know, usually now when I go down there, I spend, you know, Nicolene and, uh, and Peter Allen are nice enough to, to let me stay with them for a couple nights. And uh, I ran out to pick up some, uh, some Chinese food one night. And uh, I guess he had some sort of order that he, you know, typically orders from this place. And uh, I walked in, put in the order and uh, the woman looked at me and goes, Oh, I know your dad, you must be...
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I I, uh,
0: I, I bust his his chops every time I get... uh...
1: Hello and welcome to the Xanimo Wine Co. podcast. I'm David Clark. Xanimo Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website, xanimo.co.za, for more information on what we do. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa where the sale and movement of wine is, at least for now, forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We are using the internet to record these podcasts and it doesn't always behave. So apologies for any issues with the audio. We've tried to edit it to make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast we have Dom Nocerino of Vinifera Imports based in New York. A bit of a change of pace for the podcast today. Dom isn't professionally involved with South African wine, but he has been involved with wine his whole life as his family has been importing Italian wine into the US since the 1970s. As you will hear, Dom is an articulate, knowledgeable wine lover And can also grow a mean moustache. Check out our Instagram feed for a photo of Dom holding a bottle of cartology and sporting an excellent soup strainer on his top lip. We chat about selling wine to trade, the importance or not of journalist points, what has been happening in Italian wine over the last 10-15 years, including the issue of climate change. There's actually some really super interesting information on Italian wine in this podcast, if that's your thing. Dom's experiences in South Africa, including a hilarious story about our mutual friend, Peter Allen Finlayson and more a bit of fun for a Friday. I give you Dom Nocerino. Cool. I'm uh, I'm joined here by uh, Dom Nocerino. Hi, Dom. Uh, hey there. How are we doing? Uh, yeah, not too bad considering uh, <laughs> considering what's what's going on in the world at the moment. I've got lots of wine um, and yourself.
0: Uh, you know, doing well, doing well, making the best of it, kind of, uh, in the same boat here. So, uh, yep. you know, drinking a lot, drinking a lot of wine, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's going to happen here, moving forward, hoping for the best and, you know, following, uh, you know, the, the rules and, uh, and yeah, and hoping that things get back to normal, uh, you know, really for the whole world as uh, soon as possible.
1: Yeah. Ditto for those who don't know you, maybe just, give us a brief introduction to what you do and, and your life into, in wine up until this point, and then, and then we'll go from there.
0: Uh, sure, uh, so I'm uh, based in, uh, in New York. My family has been uh, in the Italian wine uh, importing and distributing business in the United States for, uh, for 40 years. Uh, so my father was originally from uh, Napoli. Uh, he met my, uh, my mother who is from the States uh, in France of all places. Uh, and then they um, managed to find their way back to her hometown, which was kind of Chicago in the Chicagoland area. And, uh, you know, he lasted, uh, I think it was two days uh, as a waiter uh, before they fired him for dropping an entire peach cobbler down the back of a woman's shirt. Uh, then he uh, <laughs> That's <I think> awesome. <laughs> lasted, a—I uh, think it was like a half day in a bank before... Uh, You know, his manager, uh, you know, just kind of looked at him and said, hey, I don't think this is going to work out. Mm -hmm. And then he uh, just responded to uh, an ad in the Chicago Tribune for wine sales. uh, And, you know, they just had, you know, wine sales and a phone number and found himself selling the worst German wines you could possibly imagine in the south side of Chicago in like 1972, uh, 71 in that area there. Okay. Uh, so, So... so started to kind of float in the, uh, in the industry from like one distributor to another, uh, realized he kind of had a talent for it and really, you know, kind of started uh, to dig wine. And uh, at a certain point he said, you know, I feel that quality Italian wine is underrepresented here in the States. Uh, and uh, and went back to Italy, convinced a few producers to take a chance on him. Then he started uh, importing and distributing wine in Chicago in 79 uh, under our uh, company, which is Vinifra Imports.
1: Different inputs. Okay, cool. And was he doing wine stuff in Napoli um, before, or was just part of the culture?
0: No, he uh, he actually didn't know anything about wine. Uh, okay. So just kind of, he played kind of the equivalent of, I guess, semi-professional Italian soccer. Yes. He made it to the the kind of level right before like Serie A, for those familiar with Italian soccer.
1: And, yeah. Uh, so it's called Serie B. Serie B is that is that it?
0: yeah exactly you made it yeah. to, it's like you know kind of one of those sedia chi sedia b sort yeah. of, you know weird leagues that you know doesn't exist today but yeah uh you know when he realized he wasn't going to be able to do that he uh he went to to uh france where we had some family and just kind of looking for you know any sort of gig because you know southern italy post-world war ii uh things were were really uh, tough down there so yeah. like a lot of other young italians just kind of flew to other countries nearby looking for work and uh, and that's where in my mom
1: yeah right now a lot of a lot of um Italians up in, ended up in australia as well under the, the exact same conditions and mostly from the south yeah. um yep. so yeah mostly from the rural areas and there was just no work so they ended up coming uh coming to australia also um so obviously you've been living in what in, the, in a wine family all your life then
0: yeah, it's it's kind of funny. Like uh, I'm a lifer uh, in the wine business. You know, it's, when you talk about kind of the multi generational uh, stuff with wine, usually it's producers in the old world and that sort of thing. But you uh, know, I grew up uh, kind of like like the you know kid of any you know immigrant parent or parents. You know, I can probably relate. You know, especially those with their own you know gigs. You kind of helped out, uh, like kind of all hands on deck. If you're part of the family, you gotta you know earn your keep. So like probably my first memory in one capacity or another is working for the family business was I was probably about maybe four or five years old and we had received a a shipment of, I think there were five liters of County Classico that were in wooden cases. And uh, while they were being shipped, one of them broke and stained uh, the other five or six boxes. And I remember him handing me a piece of sandpaper and saying, you know, get to work cleaning up the other boxes.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, so, glamour. Um, you know, from there, the glamour yeah, of, uh, of the wine business <laughs> that's,
0: certainly, certainly is. Certainly is. Uh, so yeah, so just kind of you know everything from doing stuff like that to unloading containers to cleaning the bathrooms to just really kind of doing everything. And then uh, I was really fortunate that I got to go back to Italy a lot. You know, as a kid, I think the first time they sent me over there by myself was probably about eight or nine. And uh, to just kind of spend, you know, three or four weeks uh, at an estate we were working with at the time. Uh, So help out at the winery and kind of learn the language and, you know, the sort of thing where kind of when I kind of became an adult, uh, you know, someone said, you know, do you, what do you think you're going to do? And it's like, well, you know, I think I'm going to get into wine. And they were like, you know, you realize your father's been training you to be in the wine business your entire life, right? And I kind of had no idea, but (laughs) if you go back and... uh, and look at it, uh, you know, like probably makes, uh, makes sense.
1: Yeah. So there was, there was no, There's. I mean, you were never doing anything else or. So I
0: had two gigs in my entire life where I wasn't, uh, kind of working with uh, the family business when I was in college. I, uh, I went to uh, college in Chicago and uh, I worked in a pizzeria. Uh, so I was making pizzas. And then my other gig, uh, which was just really a seasonal one was I worked, uh, in a theatrical uh production costume company uh so basically had access to all these great like you know more or less theater quality costumes so
1: yeah
0: right like holo- ho- like halloween i was able to bust out like the full like aladdin costume like it was a pretty okay. a pretty I guess, having access to to some funny stuff
1: and what were you doing there just
0: more or less like you know renting all these strange you know theater costumes oh okay yeah yeah that's awesome. But those are <laughs> really the only two gigs where uh,
1: you know, it wasn't one kind okay. of wine or one way or another. Yeah, cool. Um, I mean, we know each other through a mutual friend, which is Peter Ellen Finlayson, who is uh, obviously um, the winemaker at Cabreraus Klueff and uh, the winemaker owner, or part owner, co-owner with his brother uh, at Christollum. How did you get to know Peter Ellen?
0: Yeah, so my uh, my story of kind of with Peter Allen and South African wine in general is is pretty wild. Uh, so I had I was living in Friuli, uh when I was in my early 20s. I was there for about five or you know, five years or so, and uh, I had a, a friend of mine from university who worked for Unilever for a year uh, in Durban. Uh, so we were you know like I said really close when we were in college, and uh, you know we were then in the same time zone. So we were just like you know, well, he was down there and I was up in, in Italy, just kind of, you know, in touch, you know, on a daily basis. And uh, it, it came around to August, which, you know, in, in Europe and especially in, you know, like, you know Mediterranean, uh, you know, countries that are close to the Mediterranean, there's really only 11 months in a year. Uh, you know, August, you can't even get arrested in Italy or Spain or whatever. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I basically, and I had a little chunk of time, uh, for, for, you know, that was free, so I said, know, I might as well go visit my friend Barrett, and you know, I didn't know anything about South Africa. You know, he could have been in Bor, Afghanistan, and I would have gone to visit him there. It just so happened to be Durban. Yeah. Uh, so before I, you know, went down there, I uh, ordered a mixed case of wine uh, just to kind of, you know, see what was happening down there. And uh, when I found myself in Durban, and uh, I just really fell in love with the country uh, and uh, and the wines uh, to an extent as well. Uh, you know uh, basically i I don't just there's something that's really just kind of great a really great jovial kind of approach to wine too which i think kind of in the old world you know people can take themselves really seriously and down there there was just this kind of like good fun energy and approach to wine that i think is you know i don't know if it's unique to south africa or unique to the new world but uh, it was something that i really you know Kind of dog, and you know, uh, the the other thing about South Africa too is the country is just stunningly beautiful. Uh, so you know, between the lines the landscape, the people, and you know, I kind of fell in love with it right away. And uh, we only spent I uh, believe there was a day or two, uh, you know, in the Cape, but you know, I kind of just from that those forty eight hours, you know, told myself I wanted to go back when I would have an opportunity again. And, uh, and then maybe f- I think it was in 2016, so three years later, uh, I went back just by myself for two weeks. Uh, and you know, the only winery I visited was, uh, was, uh, the Saudi fi- uh, family, uh, even yeah. uh, was really generous for this time. And that's kind of where this all started.
1: Yeah. Cool, man. Is that the, um, that mixed dozen, is that the invoice you sent me a few days ago?
0: Yeah, that was it.
1: Oh, was wow. It. I'll, uh, I'll just read through what's here. Um, so you had, uh, Colomella 2010, um, mm-hmm. uh, Saskia 2011 by Miles Mossad. Max 20, 2008 by Miles Mossop, Radio Lazarus 2012, Interlego Shunan 2012, Interlego Red 2011, Lamasuk Syrah 2010, Takara Directors Reserve Red 2008, and then three of the uh, Ovingadrieks, mine from, um, from Urban. So you had Kokoboom, Soldat, and the Scorpion, all 2012. So it's not a bad little mixed dozen, to be honest.
0: Yeah, it. Uh, I don't. I don't remember how I came to those wines. I think somebody probably helped me uh, at the whichever retail I purchased the wines from. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was like a, you know, a good kind of uh, you know, I'd say scale of kind of you know different kinds of wines and styles and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but it was it was fun. Yeah, you know, I really liked uh, some wines more than others. Uh, and and yeah, so we kind of started this little you know kind of little side passion for me with South African wine and then how it all leads back to Peter Allen was I was uh, at uh, what was it pro wine and just walking through one of the pavilions uh, while they're you know visiting my Italian producers and uh, I recognized the Cristallum label and uh, just introduced myself to Peter Allen and that's how we uh, you know became friends
1: do you just drink mostly Italian wine you're drinking all over the world or what do you at that time so
0: so at the time, uh, you know, like, again, growing up kind of uh, in the, the family, uh, you know, business that I did, and I, I say this tongue-in-cheek here, but mm. like, you know, I didn't know they made wines anywhere else in the world until I was, you know, 22, 20, 23. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, So, you know, I really, I was, you know, exposed to Italian wine for the most part, but like also, you know, my father always had, you know, a lot of respect for, for France, uh, even though we didn't really drink much French wine. But then kind of once I, you know, kind of got out of my own and, you know, I kind of realized uh, that in order to better uh, represent and sell Italian wines, I really had to understand what was happening uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, and understand, you know, So basically, knowing about, you know, American wine, knowing about French wine was ultimately going to, you know, be able to help me sell Italian wine better because I was going to be able to have reference points and be able to compare styles and this and that and uh, where i think sometimes people that you know work predominantly with one type of wine you know can kind of get pigeonholed uh in you know one particular region and then you know you don't you know realize what's happening in other parts of the world and how that can be useful as far as being able to explain or sell you know uh, whatever you represent or produce
1: yeah absolutely i mean knowledge is power and that's in that instance isn't it i mean you do really need to to know what uh, at least on a on a general level, um, what's happening around the world. Um, uh, maybe just chat about, um, Vinifera imports. I mean, obviously been going for 40 years. Is it, is it, uh, have you got, um, uh, producers from all over Italy or do you focus on certain regions?
0: Yeah. So we, uh, we like uh, just work exclusively with Italian wine, uh, and the majority of the producers, which I represent, which is about 35, uh, give or take, uh, are predominantly based just in Tuscany and in Piedmont. Uh, not quite a majority, but, you know, that's ultimately the biggest movers and shakers in the States. It's still, you know, Tuscan wines from Piemonte. Uh, Veneto is probably, uh, you know, the third banana there. Uh, But then we represent dynamite estates, you know, all throughout the peninsula. So uh, the biggest producer I work with probably produces about 300,000 bottles a year. The smallest guy uh, is a little producer in Campania who just makes 5,000 bottles of one little wine. So, Uh, you know the the sweet spot I say for us is typically a producer that uh, makes about 50,000 bottles a year Mm -hmm. Uh, and and yeah uh, we have a a funky business model in that um, we're a lot of you know like in talking about our company I think you also have to talk about distribution in the states Uh, Mm -hmm. so in the states you know probably 80% of all you know, wine is you know sold through four or five of these huge distributors that work on a national basis, uh, like you know Southern Wines and Spirits, and you know two or three other really massive companies are you know basically eating about 80% of the figurative pie, and then the uh, the remaining 20% is kind of fought for by myself and then thousands of other uh, companies like mine. I kind of like to classify myself as a big little guy because like I'm you know like I said family-owned and, and operated. Uh, we do direct distribution in 20 uh, markets. So, you know, 18, okay. 19, plus the District of Columbia. Um, but, yeah, uh, so, and we just, you know, wine's all throughout the peninsula, you know, more or less, you know, kind of the the real, um, you know, how can I say? You know, there's some certain things that are usually, uh, in, that most of the states have in common as far as, you know, what I classify as kind of, Happy agriculture, so the majority of which are uh, certified or uncertified organic. Uh, and, yeah, and then, you know, depending on the style of the estate, for the most part, it's all, you know, what I would classify as, you know, wines with minimal intervention. and, uh, and
1: Yeah, right. Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, I spoke to um, Catherine Miles um, a few days ago, um, ex of uh, Broadbent. Um, now just recently moved to the sorting table. So uh, we got a little um, insight into the the importer distribution of the three tier system in the U S is that, I mean, just maybe chat to us about um, buying patterns or drinking patterns from from your side of things and what you've seen over the last sort of 10 years, I suppose, um, in, in the US in terms of obviously you'll see it from an Italian wine point of view, but maybe, maybe there's some macro trends that will affect South African wine also.
0: I think, uh, you know, when you talk about the states, especially to, to for people that are, you know, uh, producing wine um, internationally, you know, one of the things you have to remember about the states is, yes, it's one country, yes, it's a big market, but mm-hmm. really for all intents and purposes, it's 50 different countries because, you know, each one has its own uh, set of laws uh, and each one, you know, is, you know, has its own, you know, I guess you know some are more ultimately some states are more kind of advanced than than others. You know as far as what people are drinking. So you know when basically post prohibition in the U.S. you know each state has it and was given its own you know authority decide to decide on you know how they wanted you know alcohol beer wine spirits yada 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 to be you know legislated. So. In a state like New York, for example, uh, you have to have four, you know, for a wine store can only sell uh, wine and spirits. You can't sell food uh, and it has to have four separate, you know, four walls dividing it, you know, to, uh, to be an independent business. Yes. So what I'm trying to say is like, you can't go into a, uh, like a supermarket, for example, like what is it? Woolworths that, uh, that's in South Africa. Yeah. Like that you can't go into a supermarket in the state of New York like grab some ground beef, some pasta, and then grab a bottle of wine. So it's yes. you know uh, another another building altogether. And then alternatively, there are other states where they do sell food and kind of everything under the same roof. Yeah, uh, you know. So basically, know that every state really is different. And then as far as drinking patterns and so on, uh, you know, talking about it under the context of Italian wine, you know, we you know definitely see a state like New York uh, having more interest in you know products that are a little more uh, funky or a little more esoteric. Whereas, you know, a place like Georgia with the exception of an account or two, you know, it's more of the classics as far as like Chianti Classico, Suave, uh, you know, uh, Nebbiolo and, uh, and wines that are a little safer and a little, uh, a little, you know, kind of yeah, they're, understood, they're, uh, you know. they're,
1: they're, they're in the wine books. If you can find those wines in the wine books,
0: Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, but in terms of sort of on-premise versus off-premise, um, has there been a, a, a more of a movement to sort of wine bars and, and that kind of thing? In I mean, you're based in New York. Maybe we can just concentrate on New York then if that's where you're based.
0: Sure, sure. Um, you know, the wine bars, um, you know, uh, the thing that i had that italian wine is really fortunate to have going forward is that it's forever going to be married to italian food yeah uh, you know and, and the same goes for for french wine and french restaurants but you know, the french also have probably a hundred year head start on you know exporting uh you know on a, on a serious level even compared to italy um you know so that's where you know i'm really fortunate in that you know I ha- i can attack retail but then i also have italian restaurants and so on and i think that's one of the things that probably hurts you know, South African wine is that there aren't, you know, I think New York has one or two places that are South African in as far as concepts. So, you know, you got to attack wine programs that are a little more international and that, you know, are, are open to quality. And it depends, you know, really on the kind of wines we're talking about, right? Like if we're talking about, you know, artisan stuff, you know, that's going to be at a higher price point. You know, you're going to be talking about a one account versus like, you know, kind of a, you know, a soulless kind of commercially produced, you know, wine that, you know, people might uh, associate South Africa with, you know, going back 20 years or 25 years or, or what have you.
1: Yeah. Um, the company has been going for 40 years and you've got 35 uh, producers more or less. Um, does that mean you don't really add producers very often or do they come and go? Is it, is it, is it a high, t- is it a high churn or is it, is it quite minimal?
0: It depends. Like something that we try to say is, you know, we believe, uh, you know, we try, we, we want the wines ultimately to be, uh, the people, excuse me, the people to be better than the wines. Uh, so we invest really in, in the person or the family that's behind the product. Yeah. Uh, naturally the, the product has to be great, but you know, if you find, you know, you want to invest in, you know, in a winery where, you know, the people behind it are, you know, special, you know, even if the wines are, aren't necessarily where they'll eventually be, but if, you know, you have uh, belief in the people behind them, then you can kind of grow together. Uh, yes. We, you know, are really fortunate and, you know, it's uh, important, like this kind of philosophy has allowed us to, uh, you know, more or less with some of our producers. So, you know, Giuseppe Rinaldi in Barolo, uh, Canalicchio di Sopra in, uh, in Montalcino, Fontodi in, uh, in Panzano, so a Chianti Classico producer, We've been working with uh with these estates for close to 40 years yeah. uh so you know we like to kind of say you know, we work with our producers not for for years or decades but ultimately for generations mm-hmm. so you know with an estate like rinaldi uh you know my father originally started buying the wines from Battista rinaldi and now i work with you know his two granddaughters uh so you know yeah. special yeah. stuff so for you know for me like these people were more or less extended members of my family before I ever really understood what wine was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super cool. Um, and so when you, when you do get a new producer, how do you, what, what's your sort of uh, MO in terms of attacking the market? It, uh,
0: it, it depends. Uh, you know, we try not to fill holes, uh, because if you, you know, if, if with the thousands of things that, you know, I have going on here in the States, you know, I'm trying to work on a, on a semi-national basis. If I go to a part of Italy for a week or 10 days or two weeks, trying to find a producer just with the time that I'm investing, like there's a good chance that I'm going to more or less feel obligated to start working with someone. And if, you know, you make, you know, uh, know, if you feel obligated to, you might make a compromise. And then ultimately, you know, it's, it's not a good start. So we more or less work with new people kind of through, uh, you know, recommendations of people we're already actively working with. And then just instances of, you know, even producers that I don't work with, but, you know, have a a really good relationship with, they might recommend someone if it might be a fit for, you know, for, for my company. Uh, And, you know, and then as far as launching a product, it it really depends. Uh, You know, usually it it depends on the price point. Uh, Depends on if the winery is already kind of established already on an international level.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: You know, so I've started working with, uh, basically what I'm trying to say is my approach will be different if it's an estate. That's never been represented in the States coming from, uh, you know, uh, you know, part of Italy where the wines are going to be a little tougher of a sell versus, you know, about six years ago, I started working with uh, San Giusto Rentenano and uh, another great, you know, world-class producer. Yeah, in, in and uh, there, they, I mean, introducing those wines was uh, you know it was more of a transition than than really me introducing you know these wines to anybody for the first time so well, yeah let
1: me let me be time. specific then let me let me ask you about a producer a, a new un, <coughs> unknown producer who's doing some interesting uh stuff not necessarily super avant-garde and super out there but you know like just a slight twist on on what is classic from that from that particular region how would you how would you uh manage that and i mean is it is it is it is it about sort of getting wearing your shoes out and just going to see people and and getting getting them in people's mouths and down people's throats you know
0: it's you gotta you gotta cater you know your approach or your attack to you know your customer right like if if you're gonna go show a wine that you know is a little on the crunchier end of the spectrum you know with no sulfur bottling and you take that to a to the wrong customer, they're going to look at you like you have three heads. Yeah. So You you know naturally you have already have to take a wine like that and make sure you know you bring it to the to the right audience. So I started working with uh, two producers, two new producers from Sicily about two years ago. Uh, both you know more or less you could kind of classify as natu- natural wine producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one of the wines or uh, one of the two are a little, make wines that are a little prettier, a little more delicate uh, wines that like you don't necessarily kind of need to do the whole like natural wine introduction before you show uh whereas whereas the other one definitely is something that
1: you You sort of have to prepare the audience
0: (laughs) exactly uh so that that guy in particular you know first of all i only brought in uh you know i brought in a less you know a smaller amount of wine than what i typically do and i first you know just started selling wine exclusively in new york and uh, in california And then after about a year, I started moving, you know, a few cases here and there to other states. Uh, So, you know, just, you have to, you also have to be, it's, you know, the importer's responsibility, you know, to kind of, you know, more or less let the producer know what they're going to be facing here. Because for a lot of these people, they've never been to the States or, uh, you know, they, they just don't, you know, the United States is just such a huge country and they have no idea what to expect. So just to, you know, give people you know what you know. Realistic expectations are, I guess, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And do you do you sort of expect the producers to come visit you sort of once, twice a year, depending on their size? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. It really depends on size. Um, yep. You know, it's it's a humongous sacrifice uh, for the estates. You know, we're we're conscious of that, and we try to be really respectful as far as organizing, especially with someone that is making an annual trip or a semi, you know, or you know. Twice a year, or we have some people that really only come, you know, once every four years or don't come at all. But you know, when we do have them here, we try to you know pack the day full of appointments and really you know work them, you know, to the just so they they feel like you know the the trip is going to be useful as far as you know what their investment was because you know coming to the states between airfare, hotels, meals, you know it's it's an investment. So it's like you know talking about it from a South African wine standpoint, you know it's the sort of thing where it's not, it's not a seven-hour flight from Rome for a for, for producer in South Africa. It's a tremendous investment. It's the yeah. other side of
1: the world. And they're usually um, flying um, on the Rand, not the Euro. So that's always, right. that's another issue. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely
0: sympathetic to that. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I'm sure you are. Maybe chat to us about what's happening in, in, in Italian wine at the moment, in Tuscany and Piedmont and, and other places. I mean, it's huh. it's um, one of my wide loves is Italian wine, but I'd love to hear your... Well, I mean, you're much closer to it than I am, um, sitting here in Cape Town. So,
0: I think you know what's happening in, in Italian wine. You know the the it's, classics. It's, it's, it's the
1: it's the broadest possible question. I apologize. I can, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and be more sure. specific with my follow-ups. <laughs> it uh,
0: you know it uh, the classics are, are always the classics. I would say so. There's mm-hmm. a reason why, out of the, the you know 35 40 estates I work with. Uh, you know, the biggest, you know, regions represented are, you know, Piedmont and Tuscany. So, you know, there's, I would say more and more interest really in, you know, in Great Nebbiolo. So, you know, Barbaresco, Barolo, you know, those are wines that have really become fashionable in the last, you know, seven, eight years more than, you know, they were in the past. They've always been well known, but I think it's because of, you know, the price escalation that you're seeing in other collectible, you know, Parts, you know, wine collect, uh, collectible, wine parts of the world. So, say, Burgundy, and, uh, you know, that's pushed, you know, some Burgundy collectors uh, into Piedmont. And uh, that has caused, you know, uh, more scarcity among some of the great producers of those uh, regions. Uh, Tuscany is, is, like I said, is strong, especially for America. Americans love Brunello, love, yeah. love, Brunello. Brunello. Uh, and Chianti Classico is, is getting stronger and stronger. I think. We're uh, slowly uh, starting to see kind of, um, not necessarily on a consumer level yet, but okay. uh, definitely, uh, you know, kind of buyers and, uh, and, you know, people that really know their wine in, in the States are starting to get interested in kind of the eventual, you know, segmentation of Chianti Classico. So, talking about the difference in, you know, Chianti Classico from Panzano versus Gaiole versus Greve versus Castelluovo. Uh, which I think is ultimately, uh, you know, is good for, you know, that that region in general.
1: No, awesome. That's that's great news. That's because um, when you're there, it makes sense, obviously, with these things. You, if you visit there and you go and taste it a few places, you know, t- two places a day, because that's pretty much all you can do in Italy, because people want to feed you uh, all the time. <laughs> and then you taste the wines and then they, and you do get that regionality, even within a sub- sub-regionality, I guess you'd call it.
0: You know, southern Italy, too, is... You know, the value is just off the charts down yeah. there. Uh, you know, so I'm uh, having you know, my father from, from Napoli, from Campania. I have, I have a big soft spot for, for Giannico, uh and, you know, whites from Campania as well. You know, there's, I think some, from a textural standpoint, uh, frequently some of the, the great South African white wines uh, that I find have something in common with kind of the Southern Italian uh, stuff from a textural standpoint. So like yeah. Fianna. Uh, you know, Falangino, when it's done right, is a beautiful wine. And, you know, these are things that are, you know, pennies, for, are going for pennies and what they probably should go for.
1: Yeah, in terms of their character and drive and, and uniqueness, for sure. Do you, do you get a lot of ex-immigrants from Southern Italy only wanting to buy Southern Italian wines? Does is that, is that got some power in the market or not really?
0: Uh, not Not really. It depends. Like you know, most of most Italian restaurants are still going to be in the same way. Outside of a few instances, uh, like there's a outside of a few concepts that more often than not are not associated with Italians or Italian Americans. Uh, most people, most Italian restaurants are going to be heavy in Piedmont, and Tuscany, and then have a little, spat, you know, a little bit of everything else. Like Etna wines from Etna became really fashionable in Italy and also uh, in the states over the last five or six years. Uh, so you know, there's probably a disproportionate amount of wines from Etna on, you know, wine lists here relative to what I would, in my opinion, a balanced, uh, you know, Italian wine list should look like.
1: is yeah. uh, almost like the Jura of Italy, isn't it? I mean, just this little unique spot that exploded in, in sort of smelly circles.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's like, look, the, the wines are, you know, when they're, when they're done uh, right, they're, they're delicious. Like I think, aesthetically when you talk about a, a wine producing region and there's an you know it's on an, an active volcano i think there's going to be an inherent level of interest and excitement especially if people mm. have an opportunity to see it so i think the aesthetic stuff come into apply too
1: and it helps that it's demarcated and limited that sort of drives up the interest also yeah Yeah, Yeah. for sure. What's happening in Barolo and Barbaresco at the moment? Obviously throughout the sort of the the 80s and 90s, there was those sort of new style versus old school, you know, small New York versus old Botte. Is it pretty fluid there now in terms of what producers are doing?
0: Um, I, I would say today it's like we're, to your point about in the 80s, things being, you know, very, very kind of marked as far as, you know, shirts and skins, traditional versus modern Today, there's a lot more gray uh, than anything. Mm-hmm. There are still some, uh, you know, some by, you know, kind of reputation, you know, traditional producers that have adopted uh, a little more contemporary uh, practices in their sellers, if not from a, a cleanliness standpoint. But in this day and age, it's hard to say like, that guy is super modern or that guy is super traditional. Like you still can, there's still a few producers uh, that you know still use one hundred percent French oak, but it's not quite, I guess, the holy war that it was in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, it was
1: super division, wasn't there? I mean, it was it was quite uh, quite marked and, and and quite contrasting.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. the the, tr- the really modern producers were buoyed by, you know, a journalist or two that really kind of championed those wines and gave them mm-hmm. huge scores, and then they became you know, you know fairly easy to sell in, you know in other parts of the world. You know, in my opinion, uh, at the you know expense of you know identity in place, but nonetheless, like they became you know commercially successful, and you know a lot of those brands still to this day are successful, but they've you know dialed it back a little bit.
1: I'd say. Got a million different questions, so I'm going to fire out a few, and then are sure, not, sure. and then they're not going to be all related, and the segues might be um, <laughs> might be 180s and pretty brutal. <laughs> but maybe no I'm not sure how much you know about your well, then your father's business throughout the 80s. I mean, I look at Australian wine, and Australian wine pretty came of age internationally and matured with the, with the release and the, the hype surrounding the 1990 Grange. Obviously, there have been wine before that, but that was when sort of the world took notice of Australian wine at that level, in that context, at that price point. I've got a good friend who uh, imports a lot of its own wine in Australia, Michael Trembath. And he he seemed to think that the, the Italian version of that was the 85 Sassicaia. Um, the, obviously, there had been wine in Italy for you know millennia, uh, but in terms of the fine wine buying market, it had been obviously dominated by, as you mentioned before, Burgundy and Bordeaux and Port and, and German Riesling and those sort of classic areas there. And Italy really... Only came as a fine wine country or into the into the spotlight of the world um, fine wine buying community with the with the eighty five Sassekai. Would you do you know anything about that, or is that something?
0: Yeah, so I mean, when you talk about, uh, I think there are the iconic houses in, in Italy. So Antinori, uh, you know, if you're talking mm-hmm. about the history of uh, Italian wine on a you know uh, international level, it would be remiss not to mention Piero Antinori. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know those wines, uh, Sasicaya, uh, or you know, and they more or less too. When you talk about Sasicaya and Ornolaya, they really define the you know the appellation. Like uh, it's very, it's very. You know, there's a there, don't get me wrong. There's you know great producers down there in, in bulgaria but you know really if you're not Ornolaya or you're not Sassicaya so to me the Sanguido, it's you know it's it's hard to sell those wines.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the, so they, there's a big discount there if you haven't got the right name in the Right. Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, and then the, the, other, the other name that you really have to, to mention, the other two names uh, are Bruno Giacosa and Angelo Gaia.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, yeah,
0: Those are you know, two that, we, that my family had the, uh, you know, the honor with, of working uh, with in the in the 80s and uh, with Gaia in the, in the 90s. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, those are two real trailblazers for Italian wine uh, yeah. you know, on an international level.
1: Yeah, it usually takes you know more than one producer to do something. But what I'm saying really is that the 85 Sasanai caught the world's attention, and then the others were already making great wines and were already blazing a trail on their own paths. But really, that brought people in to, into Italy. Would you agree with that, or do you do you, yeah. do you have a slightly different yeah. take on it? I think
0: I think you know as far as far as someone that represents Italian wine anything that is going to get people interested in the country of Italy as a whole, I welcome with open arms. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and if, if someone comes to, and I, I think we all in our personal histories can, you know, go back and think of wines that, you know, maybe we were excited about when we were you know younger, uh, but maybe today or 10 years later, 20 years later, uh, you know, we're not necessarily too excited about anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. so if, you know, and it's not to, to say to speak poorly of Sassicaia by any stretch, but I think that, that one definitely, you know, when people talk about Italian wine, they know Sassicaia. So mm. if it, if it exposes anyone new to Italy, you know, I, I support it wholeheartedly. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think if we can get people, you know, exposed to, you know, to, to Italian wine and then, you know, kind of show them the breadth and great wines and the thousands of indigenous varietals that we have in different styles and regions and, uh, terroir it's it's all it's all gravy
1: you mentioned scores before is that something that still has quite a big resonance for what you do
0: it does yeah i mean we can, uh, you can't pretend that it doesn't it's it's a necessary evil there's you know really i can say three or four journalists that actually can help move cases that stir some interest that said more often than not it's really it's a customer by customer or case, you know. If, of course. Yeah, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure you as as uh, you know as a distributor down there, you know that if you go into the wrong, if you go into a place and start talking about scores, they'll they'll throw you out. Uh, but uh, alternatively, you know there are going to be some you know some people that very very kind of score dependent and uh, don't feel necessarily comfortable maybe with their own palette. but if there's a a great score tied to the wine, they'll you know they'll invest in it still. A part of the business
1: yeah that last thing you said about being score dependent and not super confident in their own ability is, is is exactly my experience as well for the people who are more aligned on scores generally have less confidence in their own ability to taste wine and and not to say they, they don't have the ability or they aren't skillful but it's just really a confidence thing so yeah it's it's an interesting one it's an interesting battle unfortunately i mean we use scores here as well we're not reliant on them i don't want the producers to put the scores on the bottles or anything like that, or big, you know, medals and and stickers and things like that. I think that's a bit garish and a, and a bit sort of short-sighted. If if a person's buying a bottle because it has a score and a sticker on it, next time it doesn't have a sticker, then you then you're stuffed. That's that's that that becomes your entire strategy to selling the wine. Try to steer away from that as much as possible.
0: Unfortunately, it's just kind of part of the gig.
1: Yeah, and it, it depends on what market you're in as well, I suppose. I mean, at the lower end, I think it's. A little bit more important, I guess. But you can make an argument for the opposite. It's true also. So in terms of South Africa being such a dynamic producer of wine, I mean, over the last 10 years, it's a completely different scene than it was in in 2010. So each of these producers, and I work with 20-odd producers, and I think three or four of them were established in 2010, and the rest weren't. It's a super dynamic country and everyone's fighting for a, for, a, for a seat at the table when they're trying to sell their wine. So yeah, it's, it's a super interesting case study to see the market in action, both domestically and uh, internationally from afar.
0: I think I mean, the South African wines uh, you know, in the last 10 years or so, kind of with the emergence of some younger producers there, have been you know, treated pretty well from, from a journalistic standpoint uh, by some reputable names. You know, that's something that at least in the States is really helpful you know, a lot of, you know, some kind of the, the names that, you know, kind of people with are familiar on an international basis, like the Saadi, the Mono and so on. But I would say if you look at kind of the average scores for, you know, South Africa from, you know, talking about the Parkers of the world, the, the Venice media of the world, like it's more or less on par from what, you know, I can hope for, for Southern Italy and that sort of thing too. So, yeah. so I think it, it can, it's like I said, it's not something that I, necessarily love but like i said it's part of the gig but it's something that you know should be utilized to help sell wine in the states
1: but i, I think like a, a 95 uh for a south african shannon is not the same as a 95 for a burgundian premier cream you know like in terms of in the market and that 95 for burgundy uh points wise it means a lot more than the 95 for a uh a south african shannon Blanc so it's not just the scores it is what's associated to it
0: sure sure and this is a sort of thing where whenever that happens if i get like you know if i get a nice score on a, on a falangina and i said like we got 91 points on this falangina you know on the napa valley scale that would be 117 points
1: yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly you
0: try, <laughs> yeah. you try to have fun with it uh, yeah yeah,
1: yeah. This, this yeah this one got 106 out of 100 exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> And coincidentally, there's an ad for that winery on the back of the magazine. <laughs> Believe, it or, Believe yeah, yeah, it or not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fascinating. We chatted to your your first dozen that you tried. Whose wines are you still drinking? Obviously, you've mentioned Evan a few times. I'm assuming you're still drinking his wines. Yeah. You're obviously drowning in crystalline with your association with Pedro <laughs> Allen.
0: Like
1: probably, he's um, probably drowning you in Cabrera's Club and making you pay for the crystalline.
0: That's... Well, if I if I have a a good story to tell about Peter Allen, real fast. Uh, so yeah,
1: you've, got as, you've got as much time for, for stories as as, <laughs> as as you need.
0: So when I met Peter Allen, uh, you know, like I said, it was just really you know really quick. Uh, it was you know, kind of five minutes, and I told him, and you know, hey, I think there's a chance I'm going to be coming down to South Africa, you know, and uh, this was in March, and it was going to be in August, asking him if I could come visit him, and he said, yeah, absolutely, and you know, I think we just connected on Facebook. And then, uh, you know, we approached August and I was maybe uh, 10 days out or whatever it was and I shot him a message saying, hey, would it be all right to come visit? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And he, know, he sends me this address and I asked him, you know, what would be a you know, better time? And it was like a, a Thursday or Friday, whatever it was. And I said, like, as someone that, you know, knows you know, how tough, you know, agriculture is, you know, what, what you know, making wine is, I said, I, know, I come in the late afternoon that way, you know, you don't have a thousand things going on. He's like, yeah, no problem. So he gives me this address and uh, I was with, uh, you know, my fiance, and we show up at this address, and I was expecting uh, to wind up at the estate, but it was his home. Mm. And uh, I was just so blown away by that, just, uh, <laughs> and that kind of really has been my, you know, that's just a, a single story and kind of what my overall experience has been with, you know, South African wine producers is just people are so friendly and so generous and gracious with their time. And, you know, I would say on a level that, you know, it goes really above and beyond what you typically see in other parts of the world, so. Uh, you know, since that day we become you know, good buds and, uh, you know, the other quick story I like to say was I, uh, you know, I, usually now when I go down there, I spend, you know, Nicolene and, uh, and Peter around are nice enough to, to let me stay with them for a couple nights. And, uh, I ran out to pick up some, uh, some Chinese food one night. And, uh, I guess he had some sort of order that he, you know, typically orders from this place. And, uh, I walked in, put in the order and, uh, the woman looked at me and goes, Oh, I know your dad, you must be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh,
0: I bust his, you know, his chops every time I get.
1: Uh, the dad jokes.
0: But, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, through, through Peter Allen, I met uh, Butch Allheight, who uh, is another uh, dear friend, uh, Butch and, and Suzanne. Uh, and yeah, I, I just can't say, you know, enough about uh, those two, just how great they are and really kind of embody the artisanal spirit that you know we like to uh, you know, talk about we're talking about wine and, and all those happy things so yeah uh, yeah so beyond that like i know i threw you I, I met uh lucas van and i'm gonna butcher the name here uh lager and burn as the americans might say
1: yeah and locker and uh, yeah <laughs> yeah
0: so you know really I, I buy you know whatever i can find here in the states uh, coupled with whatever i can you know uh, wedge into my suitcase when i'm coming back home uh, yeah, yeah. I love. I like as someone that uh, kind of has a soft spot for you know for whites that are are interesting from a real textural standpoint. We j- we drink a lot of Chenin Blanc. You know, like the we love this, the good Syrah down there. Uh, you know, Grenache when it's done on on a, a little, a little, on a on a bouncier side, I guess I would uh, say can be really uh, you know can be great as far as my palate goes.
1: Tend to like wines with quite good energy and and tension. Would that would that be a
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If I'm, if I'm going to drink something that's on the, uh, you know, on the heavier end of the spectrum, it's typically going to typically gonna be a white wine. If anything, like I like my whites with a little more weight, a little more texture and I like my reds to have a little more energy and be a little brighter. Uh, yeah. but you know, it, de- it depends on the occasion and you know, there's great wine made in a variety of styles, but, uh, but yeah, those are the, the kind of the fast ways to my heart, I guess.
1: Yeah, cool man. Um, just got a couple more questions back about, uh, Italy, climate change is uh, obviously a factor in viticulture at the moment are you are you are people talking about it in barolo and barbaresco are they sort of more crew based wines about the different ripening levels of different vineyards changing etc cetera, etc cetera, or
0: yeah yeah it's 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 real uh, you know in in some cases if we're going to look at it from a positive standpoint i mean you can look to look to a region like friuli where you know red wines had whether it was indigenous varietals like Pignolo, uh, Refosco, or, you know, Bordeaux varietals, really had a, a hard, you know, time, you know, reaching full, you know, getting to those, you know, ripeness levels that you need to produce world-class red wines. Now that's not a problem at all. Now you have to watch the alcohol levels on some of these things. You know, alternatively, now it's, you know, part, you know the, the whites in preserving acidity has become it's been tougher than it, than it was in the past. You know, I was talking about going back to Piedmont, you know, there are going to be some crews that, you know, historically were considered the best because they were warmer that now might be a little too warm. I would also say in the last 20 years, 30 years, the, the viticulture has really improved uh, compared to say 70, 80 years ago. So uh, yeah. where, you know, people, I would say are are more prepared to kind of face these obstacles than they would have been in the past. It's still, it's still not easy. And I think, just kind of uh, the volatility of, you know, the weather uh, in Italy is really more of a concern than temperatures, uh, okay. uh, if you're gonna speak in, in absolutes. Like when you're seeing, you know, just huge spikes in temperature and hail, that's when, you know, things are, and then that's, that's the sort of thing where you can't just leave a little extra foliage on and you'll be able to avoid.
1: You know, yeah, you, you, you can't farm your way out of it.
0: All right. exactly, exactly. Yeah.
1: And so is that, is that of more concern in terms of the, the unpredictability of the weather patterns?
0: Absolutely. I think that's yeah. what probably people would tell you more than anything.
1: And how, how has the stylistic changed in Barolo and Barbaresco while we're there in terms of the, the generational transition in the last sort of 20 years? I'll preface the question. So there's a lot of producers who established themselves in the sort of the, the 80s and 90s. And then now, you know, 30, 40 years later, it's the next generation taking over. Do you see much changes in styles along those sort of second generation winemakers?
0: You know, I, I think you have to look at it too, if you're going to talk about Piedmont in a, in a broader scope of, you're talking about a, you know, a region where, you know, children, you know, from Piedmont were running to, you know, work uh, in fiat factories and running to, to, to Milan because you know, it was not really profitable making wine. You know, today yeah. that's not the case. Like, even though we, you know, both of us know that, you know, the, the wine business is and you know, producing wine is not glamorous by any stretch, but it's it's profitable, and uh, you know, and people are you know are interested uh, much more in those wines uh, today than they were 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, you know, so you have you know, if you have like uh, a generation that is interested in wine and is passionate about wine and has the opportunity to go, you know, travel to different parts of the world and uh, work harvest and, you know, have, you know, a little more, you know, uh, knowledge and information that they can, you know, utilize, you know, at, at their, their family estate. I think it's, it's a great thing. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so I, I would say there's definitely more interest, especially these days too, when you talk about, you know, a good hectare of, uh, you know, Barolo now going for over a million bucks, like, There's, you know, there's incentives for families to stay in these businesses, uh, or you can look at it, incentives for families to get out of these businesses. But, uh, you know, stylistically, I think it's rare these days, you know, I can think of a winery or two where things really changed uh, stylistically. But, uh, you know, I think just, you know, the new generation is bringing more experience and more uh, technical uh, knowledge into these wineries. Uh, So, you know, I feel... Really positive about as far as wines from from Piemonte uh, are going.
1: You sort of touched on another thing I wanted to ask you about was Friuli and whites, and uh, and the whites from um, Alto Adige as well. I mean, I always loved those wines, but I, I they never really found um, for me, for my experience, anywhere any any real solid footing in the market. They were always sort of sitting in terms of you know, if you're putting it on a, on a world-class level, they're always sort of sitting below the the reds of, as you say, Tuscany and, and Piedmont. Is that still the case or are they getting uh, more nuanced and more precise and, and more complex?
0: I think Friuli uh, was really fortunate that in the 90s it was a really fashionable area, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, as far as in talking about uh, the States. Uh, Friuli and Whites were seen, you know, really positively. Also in, in part buoyed by, you know, Pinot Grigio, uh, which now, you know, you know, Pinot Grigio is. We can spend another hour and a half talking about Pinot Grigio here, but uh, can
1: we? Can we not? Is that okay? Also,
0: (laughs) I think that's okay. Uh, But you know, the the thing about uh, you know my for Friuli, you know, the Friuli, people from the northeast in Italy, or you can probably make this case for any part of the world uh, where you know you're near a border that has seen some wars and some pretty you know bad stuff people are inherently closed and a little colder than what you're going to find in, you know, central Italy or southern Italy and even like Piemonte. I always laugh when you know, growing up, when people talked about, uh, you know, people from Piemonte being a little you know, kind of mean and a little colder uh, relative to other parts of Italy, like relative to Friuli, you know, the Piedmontese, I like to say, are like Brazilians. Compared oh, there's to sunshine
1: them. in a bottle. Yeah, exactly right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: and it it was something that I think held back Friuli because a, a lot mm. of producers, and I don't want to speak, you know, too broadly here, but there are because there's definitely exceptions to this rule, but relative to other parts of Italy you know, there are a lot of producers in Friuli that just drink their own wine. And not only do they, you know, even if they don't drink the wines of their neighbors, you might think, okay, I make Chardonnay, I make Sauvignon Blanc, maybe I should, you know, taste some Sincere, or I should taste Chablis. I would bet that there are a lot of producers that make a lot of bottles of wine that have, you know, can count the, you know, maybe have never tasted Chablis or have never, you know, been to France or, you
1: know what I'm trying to say, like yeah, yeah. No, I've, I had a similar experience or feeling when I came to South Africa uh, the first time. Pro- producers producing, you know, Cabernet and Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, and I just got the feeling they wouldn't, they weren't drinking Bordeaux, Sancerre, Burgundy. Yeah. That's changed a lot uh, in the last ten years, but I got a real sense that they were using their neighbors' wines as their benchmarks or, you know, their their regions' wines as their benchmarks or, but not actually really exploring outside of uh, outside of South Africa. So I, I understand exactly what you, what, what the feeling you are, because I've you just des- described it perfectly for how I felt about um, South Africa 10 years ago when I first came here, or first visited here, not when I first came here, but when I first visited here what part of uh, Italy is sort of up and coming that we should be aware of in the next sort of five, five, ten years?
0: It's, uh, it's like, it, it, it's really hard to say, but it's something mm. that from the uh, you know, wines that I'm, that I'm personally really excited about right now You uh, go back to Campania, just Taurasi. Taurasi. So the, really the reference point town, you know, or area for Aglianico uh, is a relative bargain to what, you know, the other great wines of the world go for. So even if you're talking about the best wines of Italy, uh, you, you're going to name, you know, Barolo, Barbaresco, you know, Brunello, you know, Chianti Classico, whatever you, you know. What are going to say? But really, the mm-hmm. iconic wines from those regions are going to cost you a pretty penny. Where you can get, you know, arguably a Taurasi from a top five producer, at a real bargain. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and kind of, you know, Taurasi uh, in southern in, in Campania in general, I like to typically say, is about 20 years behind, you know, Tuscany and Piedmont. In so, price, you mean, that, or- in price, but really just from, a, from an organizational standpoint, uh, you know, it's... Yeah, right. So ju- just now, like we're in Piedmont, say 30 years ago, you started to see, you know, some of these producers like Bruno Giacosa lose these long-term leasing uh, contracts on vineyards. And you saw the emergence of, you know, these little micro producers once they were able to get their, you know, their, their vineyards back. Mm-hmm. You know, that's starting to happen in Campania now or happened 10 years ago. So I worked okay. with a little guy down there who you know, only makes 10,000 bottles of wine. He started in 2003 and, you know, he's got these 200 year old pre-phylloxera vines that, you know, are sitting right in the township of Tarasi. that, you know, if, if this was in Piedmont or Tuscany, there would be, you know, 30 coach buses lined up to, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, right. to to check this out, but there, you know, nobody knows about it. And these are wines that are going to last mm. for 40, 45 years and develop wonderfully. So yeah,
1: uh, awesome. that's
0: something that Aldianico is something I'm really excited about. And then, uh, you know, really, like, sometimes the classics, like, you know, to, to go back to Sicily, all this hype around uh, Etna and the Rello Mascalese, you know, people are forgetting about what great Nero is. Mm-hmm. And you can get a world-class Nero really for a song. So, you know, these are some things that, you know, and and, and for me, from a, an importing and distributing standpoint, these are varietals that people already know. So I'm not having to kind of explain what is you know, some obscure varietal from, you know, a region that they might have not heard of where I can say this is a great art, you know, a little producer who just started making wine five, six years ago. The agricultural sound winemaking is, you know, is not the, <clears throat> what we're going to be talking about here. It's, uh, and I can to sell them something that is a varietal they know and that's an easier transition than like really trying to set up shop for two hours and explain to someone, you know, the various, you know, areas of the marque or, or whatever it is.
1: Cool, man. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you for this, uh, this hour. Stay strong and, uh, and love to the missus and, uh, and we'll speak soon. Sounds good.
0: Cheers, Take man. care. Thanks, Tom. Cheers.